Hello and welcome to Sibylline Insights. I'm Gareth Westwood, Head of Global Intelligence, and we're recording this from our office in central London on Thursday, the 9th of February, 2023. On today's episode, Edie Lipton joins us to talk about the ongoing conflict in central Ethiopia. Tom Carter will be unpacking the growing trend in environmental activism across Europe. And Kaylin Johnson will join us to discuss recent trends in ransomware. And in a special bonus segment, we will be joined by Sydney Stewart and Ricardo Cocciani to talk about what really matters in the recent Chinese spy balloon saga. Well, welcome, Edie. Great to have you on the podcast. So um, a lot of our clients and indeed our listeners and viewers would have been looking critically at the Tigray region over the last several months, indeed years. However, there is a growing conflict in Aromia. Uh, maybe you can just put us in the picture and um, tell us you know, a little bit more about this conflict. Yeah, absolutely. So since the intensification of the war with Tigray in 2021, we have seen the Oromo Liberation Army, or the OLA, which is an ethno-nationalist group, expand um, within the region throughout their conflict with the Ethiopian government. So they were in pockets of um, the west of Ethiopia, on the border with South Sudan, and in small pockets in the south as well. But we've since seen them expand further westwards and um, increase their presence in the south as well. So where the government has reduced control over those areas of Aromia, we have seen an increase in insecurity and criminality, which is increasingly elevating risks to foreign nationals there. Okay, so not stable at all then, really. Um, and it seems like the Tigray conflict has been a bit of a catalyst for this, this current conflict in Aromia. So I, know, I noticed we pushed out a report um, in our World Risk Register only last week on this. What have your desk been seeing in, you know, in recent weeks? So what we've been seeing is where the government have got a reduced uh, influence of control in those areas of Aromia. It means that um, the long-standing history that the Oromo people have um, tensions over land rights means that they are not able to um, resolve those issues through legal means and through other channels that would ordinarily be available if the government um, is kind of implementing the rule of law there. So what we have seen is when foreign companies are moving into Aromia, those issues are being resolved through violent means, um, through vandalism. Um, in January, we saw two instances, uh, one of which was the abduction of Nigerian workers from a cement factory in the West Shiwa zone of Aromia. And a few days later, we saw Chinese citizens were attacked as well by gunmen. Um, so what we're seeing there is increasingly where the government is not able to um, retain some form of authority in those areas, the, the Oromo people are taking to um, other more violent means of resolving those issues. So you'd say a, a, an increasingly hostile environment for businesses to work in. Mm. And does that extend to Addis Ababa as well and other population centres? Or are we just seeing this in more rural, isolated uh, areas? We're seeing it 
um, in those rural isolated areas of Aromia. But it does mean that where the government is moving um, resources and troops to the Amhara region from Addis Ababa, those are being subject to attacks and um, that in itself will elevate threats to the transit of goods from Addis Ababa. So how do we see this panning out then, not just over the short term, but maybe over the next few months? So at the moment, the current government offensive is is kind of unsuccessful. And whilst they are focusing on Tigray still, it means that they have insufficient uh, resources that they're able to put into the Aromia region. So um, despite there being a ceasefire agreement with Tigray from the 2nd of November, ongoing negotiations means that there are still some anxieties over um, some uh, contentious issues that are being resolved at the moment. And whilst those anxieties remain, it means that the government is um, still kind of focusing its resources and its, its focus is very much still on Tigray um, rather than Oromia. And while members of the Prosperity Ruling Party at the moment are um, kind of pushing for the government to resolve the issue through other channels like negotiations. The government has been rejecting those and it's sticking with its military approach. So it's, it's very much likely that over the coming months, um, the issue in Aromia and the conflict itself is likely to endure. Worrying times, then we should really look for the outcome of the Tigray negotiations as a potential indicator as with where this might go in the future. Absolutely, yeah. Well, fascinating stuff, Edie. Thank you very much indeed. And we look forward to welcoming you back in the future. Thank you. Okay, and now we have the pleasure of welcoming Tom Carter to the pod for the very first time to talk about activism in Europe. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much. So climate activism is nothing new indeed. Uh, those of us who live in London have experienced firsthand the effects of disruptive activism um, over recent months and recent years. Yeah. However, some policy changes in Europe um, have led to a worrying trend that your desks are, are seeing. And I'm wondering if you could just put that in context, particularly how it relates to Russia, Ukraine. Yeah, so I think it's important to bring uh, this escalation of activism in, in Europe back to the initial energy security implications which we saw um, from Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, which led to the prioritization of fossil fuels um, over green energies um, which eventually saw um, Germany invest upwards of 9 billion um, euros into LNG, liquefied natural gas um, and a reactivation of um, fossil fuel powered plants. Uh, Netherlands also did the same. Um, meanwhile, in the UK, there was um, the government issued over 100 new uh, oil and gas licenses for ex uh, exploration uh, in the North Sea. Um, and the latter saw the emergence of Just Stop Oil, which we will all remember um, caused the disruptions in London. Um, but no, I think it's, it's that kind of transfer from, um, from the priorities um, which we saw, which has really driven climate activism recently. Okay, so policy shifts in Europe. Um, incentivizing this trend. Now, you mentioned Germany, and I know your desk has pushed out a few reports in recent weeks on the targeting of infrastructure, road infrastructure in particular. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you could pass that out for us. Yeah, so I think it's important just prior, before we look at the road infrastructure, there was a very big um, protest um, targeting RWE's expansion 
um, of a coal mine which the government said it was needed to secure the energy security after all the LNG investments um, and then that kind of it set the tone for activism um, and it really galvanized um, people's wanting to really target the government and um, entities which are seen to contribute to um, fossil fuel fossil fuel consumption so yeah road uh, activists has become an increasingly um, more disruptive form of tactic which activists have utilized recently um, where last generation of targeted motorways um, and the government there's a real driving force behind this because the uh, government plans to expand 144 motorways um, which have been caught up by regional activists like Fridays for Future um, and Extinction Rebellion itself. Um, and since then, there are protests planned on the first weekend of March between the 3rd and the 5th, where activists intend to hang down from bridges over the motorway to cause disruptions, similar to what we saw with Just Stop Oil, um, apart from the hanging. So potentially very disruptive in the short term, and what do you say, set to continue into the medium term? Yes, definitely. So last generation, the, the climate activist group were, who are responsible for most of these disruptions have already announced that they intend to escalate and continue with their, um, with their form of disruption, civil disobedience. And just to, to finish off, I heard you mention Extinction Rebellion. Mm. Um, they've recently made an announcement in the UK, which is quite puzzling to me and I know many of our clients. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could just briefly explain what they said and what it might mean. Yeah, so on January the, January the 1st, Extinction Rebellion um, pledged that they would uh, have a re reorientation of their tactics from pr um, prioritising more attendance and relationships, um, and that would be removing all disruptive act actions and civil disobedience. Um, it's, it's an interesting announcement. Um, we at the desk were looking at it, also quite puzzled. Um, and I think what we have to remember when looking at Extinction Rebellion um, is it's the group is a, has a decentralized structure um, which means c trying to control the regional chapters of Extinction Rebellion will become almost impossible um, so for a couple of instances um, which I can give around Europe um, I mean the recent protests of BMP Paradise um, in France they've thrown oil over cash machines um, and notably in the Netherlands um, Extinction Rebellion have protested the, a, a section of the A12 going into The Hague um, and I think this kind of underlines that although the initial announcement said we want to move away from these disruptions, disruptive actions, they, they will likely be sustained throughout 2023. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I know your desk will be uh, watching this with a keen eye and we look forward to having you back on the pod in the future. Look forward to it as well. Thank you. Well, Kaylin, great to have you on the podcast. Uh, a warm welcome. Now, we've been seeing ransomware for years now. I remember talking about ransomware as the, as the big thing in InfoSec and cyber you know, many, many years ago. Why are we talking about it now? I mean, that's a good question, Gareth. I mean, right now it's nine days into February, uh, a month and a few days into 2023, and already we're seeing a huge amount of attacks happening at a large scale. You've got ransomware attacking um, Norway shipping services. You've got right now the ES ESXi <laughs> servers being targeted with ransomware with two-year-old vulnerabilities. Uh, Vice Society is still targeting education sector, manufacturing sector. It's happening very frequently for being such a short time into the new year. 
So we've seen a, a spike in attacks um, a, a across industries, would you say, or is, are there any sectors that are specifically targeted? I'd say right now it's across all sectors. It's quite, um, ransomware is quite industry agnostic that depending on the actor, they will just target anyone and everyone because it's more for making money. They like to do double extortion attacks where they're all encrypting you know, uh, software and uh, networks, but they're also tr then threatening to expose the data that they've stolen online, which then also has GDPR and data protection um, regulations for the companies that there's a more incentive to pay the ransom, but also paying a ransom now is illegal, at least in the US to pay. So it creates um, an interesting vector that it's hard for businesses to kind of dance around because there are a lot of different things that they have to think about, but it's happening globally to every industry that it's one that you have to be concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure many of our listeners and viewers will be very concerned about this, especially seen as it's opportunistic and seemingly quite ubiquitous in, in the targeting. You mentioned there about the, the extortion and the encrypting. I know we've seen ransomware um, evolve in terms of you know, the tactics, the techniques and the procedures, the TTPs. Wondering very briefly if you could just talk us through how those TTPs have evolved uh, to where we are now. Yeah, of course. So I think the fairly stable trends that we've seen with TTPs for ransomware are phishing emails. Um, we've seen most recently um, phishing emails kind of migrate to using links as well as like OneNote attachments to try to initially infect people and organizations because we're, uh, Microsoft Word has disabled macros from both Word and Excel. So they've had to adapt to that shift. Um, but we're also now seeing like with this ESXi server um, ransomware attack going on, they're targeting a two-year-old vulnerability. Um, so that's another attack vector that's now being exploited as vulnerabilities in software that have yet to be patched. But also most recently, as of today, that same ransomware is now somehow affecting those servers that have also patched the vulnerability that it was exploiting in the first wave. Um, so threat actors are moving extremely quickly to develop their TTPs, um, not only using the tried and true methods of phishing and then double extortion with both um, infection to you know, ex um, encrypt their data and try to get money that way, as well as threatening to expose the said um, ex like stolen data that they're also now migrating into new avenues. Also more groups are becoming ransomware as a service, which means that they're now offering their services to anyone on the dark web. So then it means also now threat actors that maybe aren't as sophisticated can pay for these services to then conduct sophisticated attacks. So the uh, TTPs are just, you know, there's the tried and true methods, but they're constantly evolving, which makes it a hard um, threat to always stay on top of, but that is currently what's happening. So a, a game of cat and mouse, or, or, or whack-a-mole, really, to extend yeah. the analogy. Uh, so, and, and it also seems um, like these threat actors are actually, you know, given an attack vector is intent, capability and opportunity, they're exploiting opportunities. So Absolutely. they're not using unpatched vulnerabilities like zero days. They're actually uh, utilizing um, opportunistic vectors. So to that end then, 
what can businesses do to try and stay ahead, try and mitigate and try and deal with this threat that will probably be ongoing, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think some of the, like, the obvious ones are having good cyber hygiene policies. So training people, um, their staff, as well as like CEOs and C-suite, what phishing looks like, what to not do, how to report it, having better detections in place in their own software to, you know, um, filter for spam and potential phishing um, over email to have good EDR, so endpoint detection and response um, software, you know, and antivirus software, but as well as staying up to date with what's currently happening um, in the world and seeing who's targeting their specific industries, their specific regions, and taking those TTPs that they see within like the MITRE attack kill chain and applying it to their own security detections and seeing where they may have gaps. Having better patching policies, the fact that um, ransomware is a targeting a two-year-old vulnerability that has at least affected over 3,200 servers globally, that shouldn't be happening. We should have better um, patching policies in place to at least mitigate the threats that we can prevent because there's always going to be new threats coming but we can at least prevent the ones where we've at least got the opportunity to mitigate before it even happens. Absolutely so a, a number of things that businesses can do from uh, from policy decisions to patching and of course staying well up to date with cyber threat intelligence, which is what we seek to do here at Sibylline. And to that end, I'm sure our listeners and viewers will look forward to seeing our reports uh, more in the future, as do I. But for now, thank you so much for coming on, Kaylin. It's been really good to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and finally, a big welcome to Ricardo and a welcome back to Sydney. So, the issue of Chinese balloons in recent weeks has uh, garnered war-to-war coverage, it seems. Um, some say a bit overblown. Indeed, the Chinese have been saying that. Um, however, in amongst the noise, there are some important things to unpick. So if you could guide myself, our viewers and listeners um, through this and just maybe allude to what we need to know about this incident. So for the past 10 days or so, um, US media has been going a bit crazy over this alleged Chinese spy balloon. Uh, now it's widely believed to be a high-altitude surveillance balloon, although it's been labeled by China as, a, as an immense civilian um, airship, which was gathering weather data. Now, obviously, that seems like a very unplausible um, um, thing to, to believe. Um, and so for the past 10 days, this balloon flew first from, uh, it's believed to have um, taken off from the island of Hainan, uh, in late January, later spotted over Alaska, then over Canada and over the continental US near US nuclear missile silos, where it was then spotted by civilians. Once the story became public, the US was kind of forced to make a public statement, and that's where we are today, where this spy balloon saga has overblown out of proportion, and then later on the 4th of February, it was shot down. So there's been a lot of reaction from the US. Sydney, what are you seeing? What's hyperbole and what do we need to know? Um, well, in terms of the domestic political context, um, the timing was uh, very useful for uh, various uh, political uh, representatives in the US who, you know, timed with the State of the Union address, used this as an opportunity to uh, take critique against the Biden administration. Uh, we saw GOP uh, policymakers trying to lead initially um, a Republican uh, resolution that would have, you know, sought to criticize um, 
the the first the Department of Defense and, and Biden's timing of when they decided to make uh, information public, uh, under what circumstances uh, did they, uh, you know, respond and actually address the crisis as it was unfolding. Um, but actually, interestingly, in the last couple of days, we saw a shift towards a bipartisan resolution uh, where actually uh, Democratic and Republican lawmakers are going to work together to make a symbolic resolution condemning the uh, activities uh, by you know the Chinese government, um, which is an interesting shift and I think underscores a possibility for limited bipartisan cooperation on issues concerning China, um, not least because uh, we think about 2024 coming down the pike already and um, a majority of Republican, Democratic, and independent voters uh, perceive China to be a critical threat to national security. So it's very advantageous for policymakers to take that hard tack. Um, but interestingly, it might actually be done on a, on a bipartisan basis. Potentially an outcome then that uh, finally uh, joins hands across the aisle uh, in the US. So there's going to be an array of questions uh, on the incident itself, especially now NORAD has come out and stated that this wasn't the first time and it's been undetected. I do believe uh, you folks are going to be publishing more on US China in the coming weeks. And I know that's going to be made available, um, not only to our subscribers, but but outside those channels. And I know that uh, you folks are going to speak a little bit more on it uh, in the near future as well. So for now, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank, thank you, you for having us. And that's it for this week's episode. A big thanks to Edie, Tom, Kaylin. Ricardo and Sydney and of course a big thanks to you for joining us. Please do remember to like and subscribe and we look forward to the next edition of Sibline Insights.